Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It is 7.09 on a Saturday evening, 47 degrees. Great to be back on a Saturday night on WCCO Radio. It's been a while. Uh, great to be back with uh, producer Jonathan Lowe. Uh, great having a great show here. I just want to give a shout out to our other producer, uh, David Josephson, for setting up some great interviews. One of the things that I talked to David about, because uh, on the TV side, I do a lot of political work, and I do want to invite everyone to please tune in to uh, the new politics show, Sundays, 10.30 a.m. on WCCO television. It's myself and Pat Kessler breaking down the, the big political events that are happening in Minnesota, and there are a lot of them, and also looking ahead to the next week. Uh, a month from today, uh, November 6th, it will be the midterm elections, and there is so much at stake. Minnesota really is at, at the center of so much uh, the reason you're seeing so many ads on your television, the reason you're hearing so many ads on the radio is because the path to the control of Congress, the United States Congress, really does go through Minnesota, especially the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, Minnesota has four toss-up seats, uh, the first district in southern Minnesota, uh, the third district, uh, that is Congressman Eric Paulson's district, uh, where polls show that he might be in trouble. He's the Republican incumbent. The eighth congressional district, which is that a very large district in, in northeastern uh, or northern Minnesota, and then also uh, the second district, which is a suburban district that stretches down from Woodbury and actually goes down into the farm areas uh, south of St. Paul. Uh, and so I asked uh, David Joseph, our producer, I said, you know, let's see if we can get some of these candidates on in these key congressional races to, to have a longer conversation because it, it's tough on television. You're limited. Uh, there's there's less time. And with so much at stake, uh, these candidates, whether – whatever side you're on, the, these are people who are bright people. They could be doing other things. They could probably be trying to work at a job that's going to make them a lot more money. Uh, and they are doing this because they feel uh, committed and they feel that what, what they need to do is run for office to represent Minnesota, to represent Minnesota in Washington, and, and to represent the views that they feel very strongly about in terms of the key issues of the day. And so one of those districts, as I mentioned, is the first congressional district. Uh, I do want to say right off the start, uh, we did ask uh, – our producer did ask Dan Fian. He was not able to come on tonight. He is the Democratic nominee in the first congressional district uh, and we are hoping to get uh, Mr. Fian on another Saturday before the election and looking forward to that. But we do have right now uh, Jim Hagedorn who is the Republican nominee in the first congressional district. And he had a pretty big week. Uh, none other than the president of the United States came to Minnesota to campaign for him as well as Congressman Jason Lewis and other Republican candidates. Uh, not bad, Mr. Hagedorn. Would, would you agree? <laughs> it was quite a week. Thank you. And uh, we, we had a, a wonderful time with the president in Rochester on Thursday. And our, our supporters and the folks there in southern Minnesota were so 
just energized by his visit. And thank you for having me on the program tonight. Well, absolutely. And, and I think, as, as I said, it's, it's, a, it's a great chance, I think, to really get a little bit more in-depth. And we have many, many listeners in the 1st Congressional District. And, and one of the things I think that's important to note about the 1st Congressional District, because those of you who are in the 1st Congressional District – uh, who are listening tonight, you know you're in the 1st Congressional District, but I think there are a lot of people in Minnesota that don't realize the the geography of the 1st Congressional uh, District because it, it actually encompasses Rochester, then goes west, goes up to Mankato, but then kind of goes west all the way to the South Dakota border. So it's it's a very big, sprawling district that encompasses obviously uh, the city of Rochester, Mankato, uh, other smaller cities, but also some of the great farmland in, in in this wonderful state. Is it difficult, just logistically, to try and campaign in, in one of these districts that is so spread out? Uh, well, a little bit. I mean, it's twenty-one counties down here. It goes all the way from South Dakota to Wisconsin, and then Iowa up about eighty miles. It's kind of the I ninety district, if you want to put it that way. Right. It, it goes along the corridor, but then you kind of scoot up to Mankato. It's 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 big. Yeah, the uh, the top of the district would be like New Prague, Serbo, those types of cities. So it gets a little bit kind of close to the cities, you know, maybe fifty miles. But yeah, you're right. It's uh, some of the most fertile farmland in the whole world. Uh, wonderful agriculture production, small business and manufacturing, and then of course uh, the medical care, the the Mayo Clinic, the world renowned med- medical institution, and just uh, it's it's a diverse district, even though it's very rural in many respects. All right. And obviously the president coming into Rochester to campaign for you, um, I was not at that rally. I I was at the rally in Duluth in June where the president spoke. I was also at the rally uh, two years ago, almost exactly two years ago now, where he did speak at the airport two days before the election, which he obviously won. Uh, From the people I have talked to, uh, I did watch it uh, on our live stream at WCCO. Uh, Clearly, the energy was there uh, in terms of the president and his supporters. The president has a loyal core group of supporters, and they turned out. Are they going to turn out for you, Mr. Hagedorn? Well, I I believe so. And I think in the last election, I mean, we ran on parallel tracks. I mean, President Trump ran on issues to make sure we secure the borders and protect the country, get the economy rolling by reforming the government, protect our God-given rights. I've been running on those issues now three straight cycles. I'm kind of on the John Klein, Colin Peterson, Newt Gingrich plan. Which well, is, well uh, this is your you fourth time running for this district, and you're saying the fourth <laughs> time is a charm. But I had forgotten that, I mean, how long did it take uh, Mr. Peterson, who obviously represents the 7th Congressional District, to win? Uh, and, many, and... many years. Uh, Colin ran five times. In, really? Uh, actually on Capitol Hill working for Arlen Stanglin, and I, I saw personally uh, Mr. Peterson run against us four straight times, 84, 6, 8, and 90. But, you know, sometimes in a big district uh, like this one, it takes a little while to get your name out there and, and make connections across the district. We were going against an incumbent congressman in Walls, and that's always difficult. We were underfunded. But, uh, you know, last time around, we had 49.6% of the vote. We kept running. Now Congressman Walls is out running for governor, so the seat's open. It's really the best pickup opportunity in the entire nation for the Republican Party. And I think some of that was evidenced the other day by the president's visit and all the energy in the room. And we're just excited as heck as we move into the last month. And what uh, Mr. Hagedorn just mentioned is, is absolutely true. And I, I think, I think though, 
Uh, Mr. Stauber in the 8th Congressional District might argue that from a Republican perspective, the 8th Congressional District is also a, a pickup district. But this is, folks, why you're seeing so many commercials. And what Mr. Hagedorn mentioned, again, is true. In 2016, he lost by half a percentage point. I believe it was less than 3,000 votes, right, to, to Congressman Tim Walls? 2,500 votes. 2,500 votes. And Mr. And Mr. Trump won that district, your first congressional district, by, I believe, 15 percentage points. So He had uh, 53%, and Hillary was way back at 38. Okay. And, and so I think 38, right? Yes. yes. Okay. So, so, so that's why uh, Republicans think this is a, a big pickup. And obviously right now, Congressman Walls, who's running for governor, is, st- is still in Congress, but he still holds that. And that's what, why they're looking at that. Uh, let me ask you, is... Well, you, you wouldn't know he's in Congress because he hasn't been casting many votes out there. But other than that... <laughs> well, okay, well, you're... You shot at him for that. Right. Well, <laughs> he, is, he is running for governor right now. But l- let me ask you, is this election in the first congressional district, is this a referendum on the president? I think what it is, is it's another clear choice. In 2016, we argued that uh, President Trump or Donald Trump needed to win that election or we would lose the country as the forefathers put it together, that Hillary Clinton would stack the Supreme Court with radicals who would take away our basic rights and we would forever be have our ideas invalidated. I really believe that. We talked about that. And I used to tell people in 2016 I support Donald Trump because his election was more important than mine. I could lose and we could fight another day. If he lost, we were done. And here we are two years later, and now we're in a position to go to Washington and try to help him continue to move the country in the right direction. And this is a critical midterm election, and it's a clear contrast. You know, if my opponent, Dan Fian wins, he's part of the resistance. He's going out there to resist and try to replace, and they're going to try and move the country past Obama and then some with very socialist policies when it comes to health insurance, where they want to socialize medicine, gun control, open borders, you name it. Well, I don't think Mr. Fian, uh, hang on a second, you know, and, and we do hope to have Mr. Fian on soon. Yeah. He is not for open borders, and, and he's not for a single pair. Uh, well, you know, but 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 I, I do think he is supportive of – wait, hang on a second, um, Mr. Agadorn. He, is, he does mm-hmm. support uh, certainly Obamacare, something that I know that you have advocated for the repeal of. But we do have to take a break to, to pay some bills. But I want, to, I want to get further into this because this is really important. And I think what you do point out, and in so many of these races, folks – Certainly in the first congressional district, there is a clear difference. There's no question about that. Uh, these candidates, who I think are, are all good people, have very different views on the issues. And I think that's why it's so important that everyone, no matter where you are on the spectrum and, and what you feel, that you need to come out and vote. But, uh, Mr. Hagedorn, we do have to take a quick break here. Uh, and when we come back, we'll, we'll talk to you some more about why you feel so strongly that this is a, a great opportunity uh, for yourself and Republicans to win that all-important first congressional seat. It is 724 in the Twin Cities. We are chatting now with Mr. Jim Hagedorn. He is the Republican nominee in the first congressional district. Uh, we do want to let you know uh, that we did ask uh, Mr. Dan Fian, who is the Democratic nominee in the first congressional district. He was not able to join us tonight. We are expecting to have him on uh, before the election on another edition of our Saturday night show. But we do have Mr. Hagedorn on. Uh, Mr. Hagedorn, I do want to ask you about uh, the impact and what you're hearing from farmers in the 1st Congressional District. 
because there is a lot going on in terms of farm policy. One of the things that has occurred with these tariffs is that soybean farmers have been hit pretty hard when it comes to the tariffs that China has uh, placed on soybean imports, uh, prices down at least 20%. However, this new sort of NAFTA 2.0, from what I am reading, is extremely uh, being well-received by dairy farmers because it is opening up the Canadian markets. This is the, the new NAFTA deal. It's, it's officially called, I think, mm-hmm. the U.S.-Mexican-Canadian Agreement. Uh, it was just passed a, few, a normal number of days ago. But a number of dairy farmers that I have heard from say this is going to be a big deal for them because it opens up these Canadian markets in a way that, that, that they've been closed before. What are you hearing about the president's farm policies from farmers? Same, same thing I've been hearing for months. I mean, there, there, there are liberal farmers down here that were upset, but most of the farmers understood that the president campaigned on these issues, that China had been ripping us up for two presidencies, you know, 20 years, manipulating currency, stealing our intellectual property, you know, having the better deal. And the president said we had to do better with China, Mexico, and Canada, and other countries. And so he set out to get them at the table. And then you heard a lot of Democrats, you know, running around talking about a trade war, overplaying their hand like they did with the Kavanaugh hearings and other things. And here we are, and now we have a new agreement with Mexico and Canada, and things were opening markets, and we're driving down tariffs and barriers for farmers. Well, certainly the, for dairy farmers, yes. But what are you hearing from the soybean farmers? Because Minnesota is is pretty big when it comes to soybean farming. Yeah, well, what I'm saying is the soybean farmers that I speak with and talk with every day understand that this had to be reset, that China was ripping us off, and they understand that the president's in negotiations, and they're going to give him some leeway. And they realize that in the end what he wants to do is drive down barriers and open markets that are going to help farmers, they're going to help manufacturers, steel workers, and consumers. And we're seeing the, the benefits of his policy in, implemented already with the, with the New Deal with uh, Mexico and Canada. So, you know, you know, before there was a so-called war or trade war that the Democrats like to talk about, there was a war on agriculture in the Obama administration. They were, they were ratcheting up regulations and making it very difficult on farmers and driving up costs. Obamacare was a disaster for farmers and agriculture in southern Minnesota. Ask anybody, including the Farm Bureau president from a year or so ago, said that was, Obamacare was the biggest issue in agriculture. It was killing them. And then you get into energy policies where they're needlessly driving up the cost of energy with some of their global warming schemes, and 40% of the cost of producing a bushel of corn is energy. And you realize that the Obama administration and the Democrats were not so good for farmers. And that's why Donald Trump carried the district so heavily and he was very strong in rural areas, and that's why the, the F in the DFL is disappearing, because farmers are walking away from the Democrat Party every day. Um, we're speaking with Jim Hagedorn. He is the Republican nominee in the 1st Congressional District. We Again, we do hope to have Dan Feehan, the Democratic nominee, on uh, shortly uh, on a Saturday before the election. You know, and I think I think you do have a good point, because certainly if you look at the map of Minnesota and the counties that Mr. Trump carried overwhelmingly, all of those farm counties did, in fact, go red. Uh, and, and it was striking. And, and you know, a number of times that he's been here is that one more visit, he probably could have carried the race. Uh, just real quickly, because we do have to take an update here uh, at the bottom of the hour uh, from CBS News about the uh, uh, Judge Kavanaugh, who's now actually been sworn in. He's now on mm-hmm. the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, just in, in closing, Mr. Hagedorn, 
Um, what kind of reception do you are you getting, and and are you feeling confident about winning this seat? We're excited about the opportunity, and we've been working very hard on the ground and building up our campaigns now for a couple of cycles in a row. And uh, you know, there's a lot of optimism and excitement for our campaign. We take nothing for granted. I don't count any vote on our side. We go out and ask for the vote every day. There's no harder retail campaigner in the country than than our campaign. You know, we get in the communities, we shake hands, and we're just going to keep going through the election. But we we really do believe that the people of southern Minnesota do not want to go back to these Obama ways. And I know you cut me off before, but Dan is for socialized medicine. He said he's for universal health care. You figure out what that means. There's no way to get there except a government-run system. And if he's not for open borders, then he needs to explain when ICE should be deporting illegal aliens. But he's never done that. Okay. He's for well, open borders. He said that a refugee timeout would make us less safe. Mr. Hagenor, I do, I do have to cut you off because we do have to go to CBS News. I want to thank you for joining us this evening, and, and thank you for your time, sir. You bet. Thanks for the opportunity. Right, absolutely. That is uh, Mr. Hagedorn. He is the Republican nominee, and we are definitely uh, expecting Dan Feehan at a later date. Uh, obviously, one of the key races, not just in Minnesota, but in the entire country, I think Mr. Hagedorn is absolutely correct. This is a key pickup, not just uh, obviously for Republicans, but it's a key, a key race that Democrats want to keep. Now, I want to let you know that in just uh, a few moments here, we are going to join CBS News. Obviously, the vote today, Justice Kavanaugh confirmed by the U.S. Senate. And within the past couple of hours, he actually has been sworn in. He is already on the United States Supreme Court. Here is CBS News. It is 738 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock. I just want to let you know in our 8 o'clock hour, uh, Professor David Schultz, I've not talked to him on the radio for such a long time. I've talked to him many, many times in the past few months. It's great to be back on a Saturday evening in the Twin Cities on WCCO Radio. So much to talk about. Obviously, Justice Kavanaugh confirmed today by the United States Senate, and he's already been sworn in. It's interesting. I haven't seen that many images of him or any images of him actually taking the oath of office. Supreme, uh, uh, supposedly, I would think that uh, the Supreme Court Chief Justice uh, John Roberts would have sworn him in, but I've not seen that, but we will update that as soon as we can. Um, this half hour, a uh, couple of really interesting topics. We want to talk uh, coming up in a few minutes about a wonderful free bikes for kids program. But right now we want to talk with uh, local author Tom Hubler, who has written a, a great book uh, about family businesses. It's called The Soul of the Family, Soul of the Family Business. And he is joining us right now. And uh, Mr. Hubler, am I pronouncing your name correctly? It's pronounced Hubler. Hubler. Okay. All right. Tell me about um, your book, because my husband has a, a family business, and it's not always easy to have a family business, especially in this day and age. Uh, your book is called The Soul of Family Business, A Practical Guide to Family Business Success and a Loving Family. Right. Tell us about sort of the motivation behind writing this book. Well, you know, I've been practicing for about 35 years, a little longer, and, you know, I've accumulated a lot of experiences, and I taught at the University of St. Thomas. And I wanted to convey to, uh, to family businesses the, the, the wisdom and the experience and the ideas that I've developed over the years to help them be successful and have a, a successful, profitable, well-run business, and at the same time, happy, loving family relationships. So that's what the book is all about. All right. And, and in terms of, you know, because you're talking about obviously a successful business, but you also want a successful family life and right. a happy one. What are the best ways, uh, and I know this is a big 
and this is sort of a lot of what your book has to do about or do with is what are the best ways to sort of negotiate that? Because inherently there are always tensions within families. Correct. Well, there's, there's tensions in all of our families, as, as you've just mentioned. But the issue here is how you create balance between the family and the business system. And for somebody like you and I, you know, we don't work in a family business and our family and our business is separate. But a family-owned business, uh, those circles, so if you think about your family circle and your business circle, they're overlapped. And the overlap is both the good news and why family businesses are so successful and they outperform the standard and poor's 500. But at the same time, when the, when the systems are too, too overlapped, that's what creates the problems and that's why they have a hard time. So the issue here is around how you create balance between the two systems. And the way you create balance is to have structure and formality. And clients say, Tom, we don't need all that structure and formality because we love each other. And I say it's because you love each other that you need structure and formality. So that's the first thing in terms on on the business side of the equation. On the family side of the equation, uh, it's not unusual for business and financial differences to erode family relationships. And so when I taught at the University of St. Thomas, I always used to say that you need to build the emotional equity of your family while you're simultaneously building the equity of your company and do things to promote the family because the research is that when families and family businesses are successful and happy, it goes right to the bottom line in terms of profits in the company. Let me ask you this. Is it harder in this day and age when you really can't close the door or when you when you walk out of that business, uh, let's say it's 7 o'clock at night, you still have the emails, you still have you know the, 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 the smartphones ringing all the time, the emails coming at all, all hours. Is, does that put an added stress on you know, compared to you know, a, a, even a generation ago when, when you didn't have that? Well, I think it certainly complicates things. And I had a, a client one time who said to me, I've, you know, I've never had the experience of going home from work. I'm always on the job. And the technology today just adds to that kind of stress. And how how do, how do you negotiate around that? I mean, do you do you sort of let one person handle the emails one night or or not? I mean, what's your your thoughts about that? Uh, well, you have to have a plan. It's like one of the big issues in family businesses; they don't have a plan. And so, in order to be successful and to deal with the issues you just mentioned, you have to have a plan. And there's multiple issues in a family business where you have to have a plan. And oftentimes, family businesses are so uh, overwhelmed with, with, with what they're doing on a daily basis, they forget about the importance of planning. And, and that's something that you need to plan for. Correct. All right. Is it important in family business to have somebody other than a member of the family? Because, you know, I, usually in many family businesses, there are other people who are not in the family who are part of this. Is that a problem sometimes? Uh, <clears throat> or can it be a strength? It's both a strength. I mean, it's obviously it's a strength. And having non-family employees is, is really critical. And it's one of the reasons family businesses are so successful, because they're able to surround themselves with employees who can make a positive contribution. And the same thing is true in terms of governance, in terms of the board of directors. Having non-family members of the board who are either advisory members or legal members add another level of, 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 of value that helps the family business be successful and help them manage these these complications that are so difficult to deal with. You know, as we've seen so many, especially in retail, so many small businesses, you know, shuttering down. Are, are there are family businesses just as prevalent today as they were a couple of generations ago? Yes, they continue to be very successful and very, very active. 
there aren't there aren't as many entrepreneurial businesses these days that that have been in the past uh, twenty or thirty years. But family businesses continue to be successful and and are very prominent in the business culture. All right. Um, is Tom Hubler, and again, the book is The Soul of Family Business, A Practical Guide to Family Business Success and a Loving Family. Where can folks get your book? Well, it's available at Barnes & Noble. As a matter of fact, we're having a book launch, a book party on Monday, October 22nd at 6.30. So it's available at Barnes & Noble. It's available at Amazon. and It's also available at Atlas Books. Okay, and, and where is the book launch at the Barnes & Noble? Is it one of the Barnes yeah, & Nobles here locally? It's the Barnes & Noble and the Galleria. Barnes & Noble and Gallery, again, that's October 22nd at 6.30. Terrific. Thank All you. right. All right. Absolutely, Mr. Hubler. Good luck with the book, and, and thank you so much for joining us. You're certainly welcome. All right, folks. Uh, again, the, the name of the book, The Soul of Family Business, A Practical Guide to Family Business Success and a Loving Family. And Mr. Hubler will be at the Barnes & Noble in the Galleria uh, on October 22nd, 22nd at 6.30. We do have to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be joined by uh, Free Bikes for Kids Executive Director Director Tia Martinson. This is a wonderful program. We want to let you know about it. They're providing uh, thousands of bikes for kids. Uh, and just so in case you're in a position where you can donate, we just thought you might want to know. And then also coming up in the 8 o'clock hour, uh, David Schultz. A uh, lot to talk about with him. Uh, keep it here. You're listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. It is 7.49 in the Twin Cities, 47 degrees. Esme Murphy with you on a Saturday evening along with producer Jonathan Lowe. It's great to be back on a Saturday evening. I haven't been on for so long. And it's just, as I said, it's really nice to be back uh, on News Radio 830 WCCO with all of our listeners. Um, want to let you know, coming up in our 8 o'clock hour, obviously a lot of news today. Uh, there was the dramatic vote uh, late this afternoon, uh, Justice Kavanaugh was confirmed by the U.S. Senate. He's actually already been sworn in uh, as a Supreme Court justice, so he is actually on the Supreme Court as of this evening. Uh, we'll break it down with uh, Professor David Schultz about what this means for the court in terms of potential decisions and also what this means politically uh, for the November midterm elections that are just one month away uh, they are on November 6th, of course. Uh, early voting already started here in Minnesota and in many other states around the country. But first, we want to tell you about a wonderful organization that was added again today. Uh, Free Bikes for Kids uh, has given away 50,000 bikes to Twin Cities kids over the last 10 years. They had another event today. And joining us right now is the executive director, Director Tia Martinson. Tia, thanks so much for coming on. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, tell us about your organization and what it does and how people can help. Oh, boy. So we're an organization. We, we believe everyone deserves to have a bike. So we're committed to helping children ride into a healthier, happier childhood by giving bikes to kids who need them most. We do this by collecting bikes. We collect thousands of bikes every year with the help of a line of health and the 50 collection sites we had today, for example. We collect thousands. Today, we collected 6,064 bikes with wow. our final count yeah, as of 10 minutes ago. That's awesome. <laughs> and, 
I know, right? Um, and we're, we're going to spend the next two months with thousands of other volunteers. Uh, we'll, we'll bring in about 3,000 volunteers to help us refurbish these bikes and then give them away to kids who wouldn't otherwise be able to have a bike. All right. That, that is so cool. And, and let me ask you, um, tell us about your website and how people can find out about your next event, because I, I think there are an awful lot of people who ha- might have, you know, sort of a, an old kid's bike in the garage or maybe a bike they don't use, and, and it's taking up room, and it could really help somebody. Great question. So, so after our Alina event, we have about a week to 10 days where we can accept bikes right in our warehouse. Our warehouse is in Brooklyn Center this year. You can find the address at FB4K. The four is a numeral. So that's F is in Frank, B is in boy, numeral four, K is in kids, dot org. And our address is there in Brooklyn Center. People can come and bring bikes there for the next 10 days. And then we shut that down until next year. We are a seasonal organization. Okay, great. So if somebody has a bike and they're thinking, oh, gosh, I really wanted to you know, donate the bike or get rid of the bike. And I, and I think a lot of people, you know, the, you, you got to park inside now, the, the winter's coming, you know, the snow is coming. Um, you can still go and donate your bike in person to, to the Brooklyn Center address. Absolutely. And we do have tax receipts and everything else. So we, we want to make sure that, that it goes to a good home, but also anyone who does, does that is recognized for what they do. And, and let me ask you, I think sure a lot of people, especially if they have had the bike in the garage for a while, it's like maybe got the flat tire. What do you guys do to the bikes that, that you take in? Once it comes to us, we have people who are cleaning the bikes, pumping up the tires, making sure it works. And we have three steps, actually. The cleaners who do all of that, and then we have what we call preppers. And there are people who have a little bit of skills, mechanical skills with bikes. They change tires, change saddles. They might change grips on the bikes, things like that. And then we have volunteer mechanics who work over and give a tune-up to the brakes and the, the gears and things like that, a little more of the moving parts. And then we have a safety check where our paid mechanics, staff mechanics will do a safety check to make sure it's ready to go out for those kids. All right. And one of the things about the Twin Cities, it's really one of the top biking communities in the nation, despite the fact that we do have, you know, a relatively harsh winter, folks. Uh, it really is more and more people are biking. So I think, you know, kids probably are seeing more and more people biking. And I imagine that they're pretty receptive to getting a bike. They really are. Um, I think, I think in the Twin Cities, we have the infrastructure. You know, we have the, the bike paths. We have the greenway. We have all of these things that we're, that we're getting so much credit for nationwide that we want to make sure everybody has access to that. So one of our, one of our main, uh, values is equity. And in that, we want to make sure everybody has access. And, and can take advantage the way that we do, or I do. Personally, I'm a biker. <laughs> and I want to make sure everybody has that opportunity. Right. And, and you know, think about the independence that, that it gives kids. I mean, there are a lot of us who are fortunate enough to have cars and are able to, you know, take the time, although it's difficult, I know, to, to, to get your kids to go to these practices or maybe to the rec center for, for extra, you know, curricular activities. And, there are a lot of kids that don't have that, but if they have a bicycle with the kinds of bike paths that we have in our community, that that opens up a whole new world to them, doesn't it? It does. You you nailed it. Um, what we're finding now is it's not just that kids can go places; it's where do they go, what are they doing, and it opens up a world of possibilities. It really does. You know, there are all kinds of programs and 
and opportunities that that if they have if if a, if a child has two working parents and, and they're reliant on on a car to get in there, it's just not going to happen. Right. And what kinds of bikes are you looking for? Is it is it just you know children's bikes? Is it all sizes? Uh, t- tell us about that. Great question. So we all all size bikes fit the kids. So kids once they're in in you know fifth grade, they're my size. I'm I'm five four and and I ride an adult size bike, but but I got fifth and sixth graders that are the same height as me. So every size bike is welcome. We've got high school kids that are that are six two that are that are riding these tall tall bikes. So every single bike is valuable. We prefer gently used bikes, but every bike gets used. And and what I mean by that is, you know, during these two months of refurbishment, we will strip bikes that, that might not be um, something we could fix, but it's going to have a saddle on it that's going to go on a bike that's oh, wow. okay. a saddle. And, so so you know, even if it's a little worn out, you, the parts could, could definitely be used, you know, yeah. and that, that's important too. Oh, it's huge. It's huge. We we wouldn't be able to get through as many bikes as we can get through if we didn't um, strip some of these bikes. And and we choose we strip the bikes that that are that need the most help. Okay. And it, and they they are a godsend. Let me tell you, okay. Part, parts of uh, the prices of parts have gone up and and are expected to continue to go up. And right. and every time that happens, it drives the prices of these bikes that are going out to well, kids. Well, Tia Martinson, up. thank you so much. And again, the the organization is. Free Bikes for Kids, FB4K. Thank you so much, and good luck to you, and donate your bikes, folks. All right, Thank folks. Thank you, Have a great night. Absolutely. Coming up uh, in our next hour, Professor David Schultz on News Radio 830 WCCO. I think that one of the things that uh, Mr. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.